0: Well, we're kind of celebrating, I'm kind of celebrating our student ministry today a little bit, wearing the new student ministry shirt, and uh, let you guys know a few things. One, the, the sixth graders this week got to move up. We had a special little rite of passage. I think we got a picture of John with them uh, up there somewhere, as these are a bunch of our new sixth graders who this week got to get charged with what it means to be a 6th grader moving into 7th grade, and then to walk up the hill and get to, um, to join the, at the student ministry building, which is an amazing time. And also on top of that, um, uh, just to show um, what we're talking about when we're talking about student ministry space, here's the 8th and ninth grade girls class that met on Wednesday night. Um, so just a couple of, just recognizing, we had 24 seniors up here a couple of weeks ago, Um, Paul and I were talking and realized that that's about how many kids we had in the student ministry total, 6 through 12, 10 years ago when we started um, with Paul and Duane basically being the people running that uh, student ministry. So in 10 years, we've gone from having 20 to 30 students to having 20 to 30 seniors. Um, And so that's an amazing uh, thing that God's provided for us. So... Um, again, if, if there's any question in your mind as we're moving into and we'll be bringing up, we're kind of taking a pause on talking about our capital campaign Sunday by Sunday until we have drawings, which is kind of the next big step. Uh, but there's nothing to hold us back. Uh, if you're ready, there's already we're at 77, 78% pledged and the, the decent percentage of that raised. So just to keep you updated. And this is one of the major things we're doing is clearly student ministry space is something we need to be looking at. All right. And then to kind of update from last week, remember, if you remember, if you were here last week, I hope you were. And if not, you can go back and and check out that sermon. Jonathan and his shield bearer had taken out a garrison of Philistines um, uh, uh, where we were in the account. And the garrison, this garrison of Philistines, though they were ridiculously outnumbered, they were um, defeating them. And the Philistine garrison, as it collapsed and they began to retreat in panic, that panic cascaded into Mi'kmash, which is where the Philistines' army was as a whole, and they began to panic. We're going to look, about, look at that uh, more in detail here in a minute. Though they're absurd, absurdly outnumbered, they trusted in God, which is another way of saying faith. They trusted in God. They had faith in God. They faithed in God to provide this victory if he wanted to. We acknowledge, we talked about the fact that Jonathan says, we, maybe maybe God will do this. Who knows? Maybe God will deliver them into our hands. He certainly can. God doesn't need a lot of people. He he, he can save with a lot or with a few. The question is, will he? Well, let's go see. And so in faith, they step out, trusting God with that. And it turns out, not only can he, but in their case, he did. And so the people, the Philistines are scattering. They're in huge trouble. It's a big moment. And, And I thought about it would be worthwhile to comment. And I commented on this at the time in the sermon, but to say again... Um, what I have in my notes here, but what about when you really need a yes? What about when it makes no sense to you that God is not giving you a yes? When there is chronic illness or cancer or mental illness or whatever. Here's, here's what I wrote. I just want you guys to hear that. This is what I wrote this week in the sermon. Maybe you have a family member or a friend who has cancer. Have many, Maybe, maybe many of us, are there many of us who know a baby that needs a heart. Well, I was obviously referencing the limbs, uh, little baby Christopher, who they've been in Dallas for the last several months um, with their newborn whose heart is not, does not function. And as we are gathering here together, they are putting a heart inside of him. Um, God has provided a heart. And, and we, knew it, we knew even as we prayed this that this was a tough thing to pray as we prayed, God, please provide Christopher a heart. Because we know that that means there's another family who is mourning today, uh, the loss of their baby. And so uh, we want to, in prayer, come around both families as little Christopher will be in in surgery for 10 hours today, uh, which is just hard to imagine a baby this big being in surgery for 10 hours. And so as we are praying, we want to pray for him. But here's what I would tell you. When we pray, we just keep praying The lesson was that we don't know what God is going to do. We know what God can do. And He promises us certain things. Those we can count on Him doing. That He will, for example, save us from the consequences of our own sin if we accept that free gift. That He will welcome us and usher us into the eternal paradise with Him forever if we will accept that free gift. Those are things He's promised to do. He has not promised to give us today. He's not promised to give us tomorrow. He's not promised anything. He has promised that we will face trouble. In fact, He has promised that every one of us will die once and face judgment. Those are things we know. He has not promised to keep us on earth forever, that He has not promised. In fact, the opposite. And so, yet, do we still pray as we suffer? Do we still pray when we need? Do we still pray when we face hardship? Yes, we do. Why? Because He can. He can step into these. And we have to trust Him that He knows when to step in and also when to not step in. When to provide a miracle and when not to. That's what it means to trust. True faith doesn't mean we manipulate Him. True faith is we trust Him. And so we come to Him and we pray. He even tells us to bug Him, to annoy Him. Because He needs that? No. But He still calls us to do it. So it is a great opportunity for us. So I want to be praying for them and for whatever sweet family it is that's lost a baby. I'm be praying for both of them. So if you will, join with me. Lord, you don't promise to save us from death on earth. But you promise that even in death, we can live forever. Lord, you, you promise us that there is more to life than just life on earth. There's purpose and meaning in even the hardships that we face down here, even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it. Um, Lord, we are so grateful. We've been begging you um, for a heart for Christopher for several months. And at the same time, Lord, um, wow, we we grieve with some poor family. And even though, Lord, they don't know us and we don't know them, I pray that you will somehow let them know that there is a church full of people who are overflowing with gratitude for their willingness to share in the good things. And I pray that you will somehow comfort them supernaturally, that you will capture their hearts in a way that I can't imagine what they're going through. Lord, I, I pray for your faithfulness Um, that you would comfort as only you can. I pray for all of us. All of us have people in mind that we're thinking about. People who are facing chronic illness and mental illness and and sickness and cancer. Lord, we live in fear of these things and in fear even of death. And this morning, hearing that that there was a heart for Christopher at the same time, my heart cascading with the fears. What about surgery? What about survival? What about um, the rates of the next few years? What all does that look like? And Lord, my tendency even... To trust in you only so far. And I pray that you would teach us to trust you. Um, even when we don't, can't see it and sometimes can't feel it that we trust in you. Thank you that you are who you say you are. That you will fulfill your promises. Sometimes you do other things for us as we ask as well. And this we give you thanks and praise in your son's magnificent name. Amen. So I'm going to be coming, go, cutting through this passage. We've already read it last week, so I'm going to be kind of jumping through. I'll be skimming through some, cha- some verses and et cetera because we've already looked at them in detail last week um, as reading through them. And then today I want to unpack this passage, this 1 Samuel 14. I'm going to warn you, 1 Samuel 14 and 1 Samuel 15 in particular, in the midst of a hard book, these are two hard chapters. They don't make a lot of sense to us. They were, d- these things were being done 3,000 years ago and 3,000 miles away. And so it's very difficult for us to even wrap our brain around some of the way these things play out, but I'll promise to do my best as we try to unpack them. Sometimes we're going to be left with, we don't know, here are some options, see which one seems right to you and which one applies to us. So verse 15 is where I'm going to pick up just where I was. There was great panic in the camp. This means the camp of the Philistines, probably in the city of Michmash. A great panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, meaning the Philistines. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So these, these raiders amassed a Micmash near the pass where Jonathan and his servant had attacked. The panic was spreading, and I'm sure an earthquake didn't help. And so suddenly the people, the, the Philistines are running all over the place and the watchmen for Saul see it. They see this happening. See, Saul's got people up on hilltops and in towers watching to see, uh-oh, are the Philistines going to come out? They outnumber us, they outman us, they outweapon us. We have no chance against them. Is it time for us to run? When do we run? When do we fight? And they're watching, they're watching and what they see all of a sudden is Philistines pouring out of Michmash. They must have immediately thought, oh no, here it goes. Here it comes, but as the watchmen are watching, they realize, wait a minute, that's not battle lines. Wait a minute, that's not a formation. That's a panic. So we see in 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, a multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. It's intriguing. Many commentaries, especially the Hebrew ones. Just so you'll know, by the way, Hebrew, um, Hebrew commentaries, um, rabbis and others, they don't like Saul. Um, If there's a way to interpret Saul through a bad lens, they do. And they may be right. They may have an understanding. I'm always trying to give Saul the benefit of the doubt, at least at this stage, because I still feel sorry for him a lot. By the end of his life, that's kind of done. You're not going to be able to do that. And you're going to start seeing that even in this chapter. Whatever the madness that has infected Saul, it's getting worse. And it continues to come out. Whether this is just his own character flaws and insecurities, or whether this is true um, insanity, we don't know. But we're going to start seeing... Saul's going to develop a new little habit that he's going to love, which is making oaths and proclamations. Just, just, just kind of pulling them out of his head at any given moment, throwing them out there, and they don't go well. But it is intriguing. This one, that the Hebrew commentaries point out this. So when Saul says, count and see who's gone from us, they interpret this pretty much universally as who's stealing my thunder. Okay, figure out who it is who's gone and attacked the Philistines without my permission. He's not first concerned about the victory that's happening. He's not first concerned about the people who are missing. Who he's concerned about is his own name. Now, I don't see that clearly in the passage, but but a lot of commentaries do. He's worried about somebody getting his glory. We are going to see that by the end of his life, um, uh, Saul is totally overcome with jealousy for his own son. And what kind of brokenness does it require for a father to be jealous of his child's success? That's just that boggles my mind. I, I, the exact opposite is, is what you would think would be the case, that we would glory in the victories of our children, that we would say, "Look, look at that amazing thing." Um, hopefully, that's the, the future for all of us. So Saul says to Haja, "Bring the ark of God here for the ark of God went at this time with the people of Israel." Now, a lot of th- people don't think this is the literal the ark of the covenant, though it may be. Regardless of what it is, because it could be an ephod, which I'm about to explain in a minute. But regardless, this is Saul has decided, I need to ask for God's input. Listen, the people of the the Philistines are scattering, they're in a panic, do I go down and attack? And his, his instinct here is to ask God, and we go, nice, sweet, Saul, you're getting it. Well done, Saul is getting it. He knows to go to God first. Now I'll tell you, also some commentaries say, Now? Now he finally, this is the one time he shouldn't have to go to God. Like God's already told him, wipe out the Philistines, take them out. They're in fleeing. This isn't the time to stop and ask God. God's already given instructions. But again, I want to default towards Saul doing something right here for about the 10th of a second. He's going to do something right. Hey, let's, you know what? Let's turn to God, okay? Whatever the case is. So let me help you guys understand what an ephod is just for us to understand it. We know the ephod is here because it's here with Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. 14.3 Um 14.3 says this. Ahijah, uh, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, we're going to talk about this. Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephah. We're going to come back to that. Should this be happening is a separate question. But it's there, they're there. So here's an ephod. This is what they look like. It's kind of a, a chest plate that the priests wore and twelve stones, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. So when they were asking for guidance from God, and he would point out the tribes on the chest was the idea. Hidden behind it is a pouch, in the pouch is a certain number of stones. Those stones are are the Urim and the Thumen. And we don't know exactly what they were used for. Um, We don't even know exactly what the format was. And and in fact, it may have changed over time. There's two main theories when you look into the, the Hebrew scriptures. And one is that there's two stones, you can show those pictures, Two stones that would be the Urim and the thuman. One, the white stone is the yes stone, and the Thumen is the dark stone, which would be the no stone. So you're asking God yes or no questions. It's a little bit like, you know, shaking up the little, the little magic ball, right? And it's going to come up with a maybe answer. But there's no maybe here. It's yes or it's no, and that's how they're going to use it. And, and all the commentaries reference that if this is how it was done, how obviously rife for abuse this is. How easy it would be for a priest to have a little nick on the stone and be able to tell which, which stone he's reaching in and go, oh, I think I better go with the no stone this time, right? That's why a lot of Hebrew scholars think this isn't the way that it was. It actually was like this. There are three stones. Urim means light. Thuman means Decision. And those, you wouldn't expect, if there's just yes-no stones, you would think that the names would mean yes and no. It would be pretty easy to have yes-no stones, and, and yet that isn't it. Many Hebrew scholars think that the way it worked is the priest reached in and grabs a thumen, a yes or a no, a decision stone, and pulls it out. Then the priest reaches in and pulls out the urim, and if the urim is glowing supernaturally, that means that is the answer God has, Okay. And this is apparently pretty well accepted in the Hebrew world. I've always been taught this yes-no idea, but this is apparently something that's, that's actually pretty strongly defended in the rabbi, in the rabbinical world, is this idea of a light stone which glows supernaturally if God is speaking. If this is right, what's going to happen later in the passage is going to make more sense when they try to use the stones and they can't get an answer. Well, how do you not get an answer if there's just a yes stone and a no stone? That doesn't make any sense. And so um, maybe it's just that Saul doesn't get the answer he wants. That's certainly possible. But so you remember when everything fell apart. This is, this is the... the, the <coughs> you had this whole thing that fell apart. You had Phinehas, Phinehas the son of Eli, and they died that day. And Phinehas' wife gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod, which meant the glory has gone. Well, Ichabod apparently had a brother at some point who had a son... That's a Ahijah. The question is, should he have been there wearing the ephod? I'll comment on that later in the sermon. But it does seem at this moment like Saul has the impulse to check in with God. I think that's noble. He wants to check in with God. The Philistines are in panic. Do we wait and we watch or do we advance? We cheer for Saul. Well done. You finally figured out. Verse 19. Now, while Saul was still talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, never mind. What it says is withdraw your hand. In other words, don't pull out a stone. Just take your hand out of the bag. We don't need it. So, bummer. For just a second, we thought Saul was listening. (coughs) Had the right instinct to talk to God. Well, never mind. Take your hand away from the ephod. Never mind about getting guidance from God. I don't need or want God's guidance. I'm just going on the attack. So again, the rest of this chapter is going to get really strange for us, but we'll do our best. Saul, at some point in here during the attack, Saul makes an oath. In typical Hebrew fashion, they don't tell us the oath until later in the story, but somewhere around here, Saul makes an oath. His oath is no one gets to eat anything until nightfall. Okay, so at some point he makes that oath. We'll get there. Verse 20, Saul and the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword went against his fellow. There was very great confusion. The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and had gone up with them in the camp, even they turned on the Israelite, turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after the battle. Okay, so you, you, hopefully you see what's happening Jonathan and his shield bear have initiated this panic. The panic has cascaded into the camp uh, of the Philistines. The Philistines are now running all over the place. What's going on? We've got people, everybody's saying, run for the hills. And we're all start running toward Philistia, running towards the coast, um, which is where, we're, so where, where our, our countrymen are. They start heading in that direction. They're now retreating essentially from two guys. Then there's an earthquake. Well, that messes things up (coughs) for them even further. Then, apparently, either collaborators, it sounds like there were Hebrew collaborators working with the Philistines. Well, as they see the Philistines start running for Philistia, well, they all start drawing their weapons, and they start attacking the Philistines with Jonathan and his shield-bearer. Then, remember all those Hebrews, thousands, maybe 2,000 of them are hidden in, in holes and caves and graves and all that kind of stuff. Well, they all come up out of their holes. This, the Philistines now are now playing whack a mole, but the moles are deadly, okay? And so the, every, everywhere they go, there's another person coming after them, right? There's somebody else hitting them and attacking them or stabbing them with a pitchfork since they don't have any swords, but it's a, and so they're running all over the place. This is going nuts. This is a recipe for the Philistine army to be absolutely decimated, for them to all be dead by the end of the day. And they would have been. But for one thing, this is the panic is going crazy. The Lord saves Israel that day. The battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Okay, so I've got to pull out the maps. Got to do some map work for the map nerds. So here we have, I've marked a big black circle for Micmash. Okay? Now, I will admit, we don't know for sure where these are. It is cool when you get to go to Israel and you know about where these things are. You're like, oh, I've been near there. I've been in Jerusalem and gone north. I've gone Right past these places, it's again, uh, so be thinking, if, you've, if you're thinking about going to Israel, that's about a year from now, so have it in your head, you got to start saving those pennies. All right, so, so here's Mi'kmash, and they chased them all the way up to Beth-Avon. Now this is interesting, uh, Beth-Avon, the, by the way, the house of wickedness. So Las Vegas, think that. All right, so, so here you go. So that's Beth-Avon. So they run towards Beth-Avon. Well, here's what's interesting. At Beth-Avon, in the Bible, we read about the wilderness of Beth-Avon. There's a forest around Beth-Avon, apparently, which, again, the story, this makes sense, why the author's telling us they run through Beth-Avon, because where they end up is down here in Agilon. So, again, they chase them up here, and they chase them all the way down to Agilon. Now, I also want you to get a sense, by the way, in a minute, when we hear how hungry the people of Israel are, and look at our mileage up here, So you're talking about somewhere between 15 and 20 miles, that the people of Israel are chasing the Philistines during this one day. So again, when you go like, oh, I fasted a day, why are they falling apart so bad? Yeah, but have you fasted on marathon day? Have you fasted on a day when you ran a marathon, by the way, and were in a boxing match the entire marathon? So, if you've ever done a three minute boxing match, you know what that takes out of you. Now, multiply that times all day while chasing people for a marathon. It's no wonder they're passing out by the end. So, that's what's going on here. The 24, the men of Israel have been hard pressed. So, why? Why is this happening the way it does? Now now the author is going to reveal to us there's a problem. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed all day. Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I I am avenged on my enemies. Now, there is absolutely nothing noble about this oath. He does everything. If something could be done wrong, he does it in this oath. Notice later we're going to see David. When David faces Goliath, which is we're going to be talking about that this summer. I'm so pumped. Um, uh, what is David's attitude about Goliath? Is David, does David take this as like a personal thing? Like, I'm going to go avenge myself against my enemies? No. That's not what he's concerned about. What he's concerned about is the fact that these are God's enemies. Saul is worried about one thing. Saul. He seems to be concerned about one thing. Today, no one gets to eat until I am avenged against my enemies. He has no authority to do this. Saul has now, as David Guzik points out in his sermon on this passage, Saul has now taken on 100% the role of prophet and priest of Israel. And he is neither prophet nor priest of Israel. He has no business making these type of oaths. He has no business making an oath about himself. It's fool on top of everything else. It's foolish. It's just dumb. And not only is it ungodly and irreverent, it's dumb. So he makes this. None of the people have tasted any food. They've been running. They've run half. They've run now six or seven miles a quarter of a marathon, fighting the whole time. They get to the forest, and listen, <laughs> This is as if this wasn't bad enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. As people ran through the forest, it was causing honey to fall out of the trees. And the people were afraid to put their hand to their mouth. In other words, the honey was falling on them. And they were afraid to put their hand near their mouth because then someone might report to Saul that they had eaten something. This is like torture. If, if, you, can imagine, if, you, if you can imagine running that marathon while doing the boxing match, while holding an energy drink. But you can't drink the energy drink. Under no circumstances. we will kill you if you drink it. <clears throat> They're literally having honey dripping down their arms and off their bodies. A gift from God. Where is this? The land of what? Milk and honey. This is when you see honey, you're supposed to understand immediately God's provision for his people. God has provided for his army. They don't even have to stop. They just have to lick their arms and they'll be able to continue fighting. But Saul has made an oath. No eating. Jonathan had not heard because remember Jonathan, unlike some people, wasn't sitting under the pomegranate tree. He was out fighting. So Jonathan hadn't heard the oath. So he put his staff, Jonathan puts a staff in the honey, tastes a little bit of it. The sugar hits him. He's like, Whoo, I feel a lot better. Wow, that's really good stuff. That's really awesome. And someone says, hey, your dad said don't do that. And Jonathan, a little bit subordinate here, again, he's been running, he's been fighting, cut him a little slack, says, yeah, my dad's an idiot. <laughs> he, has, he has been, he, he is a curse on his own people. Why would anyone do this? Jonathan's irritated by this. You can see. So this is a. He says the Philistine defeat has not been great. Bummer. This has been set up for an absolute destruction for the Philistines. And Saul and his makes this oath, and it gets worse. The Israelites are not able to keep up with the well-fed Philistines. <coughs> Again, they run. Uh, they, they go another about ten to twelve miles chasing the Philistines. And at this point, we get to verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and ate them with the blood. Notice how fascinating this is. The people were afraid of Saul. They didn't break his oath. They are not afraid of God, and they break his law. they are more afraid of Saul than God and how fascinating that Saul has ended up pitting himself against God. You follow me or you follow God, pick. Now, I don't think that's what Saul intended to do. All he cared about was the people seem to only follow Saul when they're afraid of him, so he does that. They get there. This is a total train wreck. They have no business uh, doing this. This is a direct defiance of God's law. They are apparently eating this meat raw, on the ground, They're that famished. They're that out of their minds with hunger, is that they start taking up animals and killing them. Someone goes and tells Saul, and we get this response. Somebody tells Saul, this is going on. And we get this response in verse 33. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me. Don't you love narcissistic pattern thinkers? Aren't they just the best? They, they have this file cabinet, like all of us do, and if you and I have conflict and, and I go, hey, let's sit down and talk this through, what did I do wrong, what did you do wrong, and we pull out the drawer and we go, oh, uh, you know, there's the, me, uh, there's the me file, and there's the you file, and there's the kids file, and there's the other people's file, there's the therapist's file, there's whatever, who did what wrong, and we go through it. Understand that for the narcissistic pattern thinker, they pull out that drawer and it isn't that they reach into the them file and go, nope, I'm, I'm pure as the driven snow. I did nothing wrong. For the narcissistic pattern thinker, there is no file with their name on it. It doesn't cross their minds that they may be the person who's the problem here. It doesn't even hit. They're just like, file, file, file. Yeah, oh yeah, you did stuff wrong and they did stuff wrong and they did stuff wrong. Y'all divide up blame and figure out how to make it right. How is it that in this situation, it doesn't even cross Saul's mind to say, blew it. What the heck was I thinking? Why did I make that oath? I'm such a big dummy. He can't own it. He can't confess it. You have dealt treacherously. So they roll a great stone here. So they get a stone. They roll it to him. He has the people bring their, bring their animals there all night long. They start butchering animals and right there, and they, then they cook them, I guess, and eat them. Maybe they cooked them on the stone. Maybe he's got the stone superheated. And so they cook, they cook them on the stone, and they start doing that. It is shocking. They were more afraid of Saul than they were of God. So he tells everybody, bring their food here. Verse 35, you get to the verse, uh, yeah, 35. Saul built an altar to the Lord, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So here Saul has had this victory so far, but it's not a great victory. It's not a big one. The people have now gathered. They're finally getting to eat. It's, in, it's after dark. Apparently they waited till after dark to sin against God so that they weren't sinning against Saul. Again, how broken is that? Um, and then at verse 35, now what's interesting is we read that and again we go, oh good, look at that, Saul's building altars. It's so what God's people do all the time in the Old Testament. They stop, they thank God, they build an altar. There's a problem. In the Hebrew here, this is clearly not... This is meant to be a commentary, a, a kind of an insult, not encouragement. In the Hebrew, it says, Saul started an altar. It's very likely some translations will say, therefore, it was the first altar. And that's possible that that's the insult, is it took Saul this long to ever build an altar. He's been king for a while now, and he just now is building his very first altar, Right? He's clearly not prophet and priest, though he thinks he is. But it may be, and I think this is likely, that one option is that it actually is saying he started an altar and didn't finish it because he's about to get distracted by another idea that he has. I can identify with that, but I don't know that that's what's going on here either. I actually think this is the author saying this was Saul's best attempt at an altar, was a stone that he cooked food on is that, he, that, that what the commentary is being made here is, and this was Saul's idea of an altar. It was a, a stone that he had people... It was not sacrificed to, to God. It was just a stone that he laid out there. So maybe he turns this big stone into the altar. That's kind of it. Saul is publicly... Maybe this is the first time that Paul has publicly exalted God amidst victories, but it may not be that at all. It may show that this was Saul's weakest, best weak but best attempt Either way, Saul doesn't wait around long to worship God. Verse 36, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And the people said what they always say. That little rubber stamp answer, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest, this is intriguing, but the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hands of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Well, now that's interesting. So Saul wants to hunt down the scattered Philistines. The people do their usual rubber stamp, answer, but the priests, the one mentioned before, say we might not should ask, you know, we never did ask God the first time. Maybe we should ask God this time. This, by the way, is the way Hebrew war goes. We'll get there. I'll discuss in detail how war is supposed to go for the Hebrew people. And it is very clear, detailed, they've missed several steps every time they've done it. So they're finally going to use the stone, but God doesn't answer. Well, clearly we're then stuck with either the little stone didn't glow or Saul wasn't getting the answer that he wanted. He kept getting no, 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 no. Regardless, Saul interprets it as this, (coughs) which is wild. (coughs) Saul interprets it as someone must have sinned around here. If God isn't speaking to me, just like with Joshua and Ai, someone must have sinned. So you know what? Let's get, the, let's get the priests together. Let's get the leaders all together. Let's see if we can figure out who sinned around here. right? <clears throat> so, this time when he does it, verse 39, for as the Lord lives and saves Israel. Here we go. Here's another one. It's a new habit. I'm going to drop an oath. For as the Lord lives and saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Now that's weird, isn't it? They didn't do their whatever seems good to you. Who knows why? Are they all sitting there with blood in their beard still? And they don't want to be the ones called out for sinning against God by eating meat with blood in it? Maybe. Maybe they already know Jonathan is the one who had some honey, and they're afraid. Maybe they just think Saul's a big moron and doesn't need to be doing this at all, and they're mad at him, and they're like, what is going on here? We don't understand. Because in a minute, they're about to show how mad they are at him. But whatever it is, He calls the leaders, at least 12 of them, probably more. They don't say it. They're washing their hands like we're not even responding to you. So he says to all of Israel and the representatives of these, you on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, on the other side. And the people, now they said to Saul, ah, see, there it is. Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day if the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son? O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. So either the rock begins to glow, he's using it as a yes-no, um, when they come out of the bag when he did this, God speaks now, or at least the stones do. Jonathan and Saul are taken. They're the ones the guilt is upon. That must have shocked Saul. There's, oh my gosh, what? Then Saul said, cast lots between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan is taken. Now, I read that, I don't know about you, I read that and I think, Huh? Is there one person in Israel who hasn't sinned this day? If it's anyone, it's Jonathan. Jonathan is the one person who has not sinned against God. I, there's not a single, at least nowhere where it says he did. Maybe he was a little you know, snarky about his dad in the forest, but that's about as close as you get as that, right? He wasn't even aware of the oath about the honey when he ate it. Like, How can he possibly be guilty of anything here? I'm going to try to explain it to you right now. One, possibility. God was not in any of this. See, here's the deal. This is the family of Eli. They have been clearly cut off from the priesthood. There is no question as to whether or not they have any business wearing the ephod. They do not. That was clear. Back in 1 Samuel 3, God had said, Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Forever. They have no business. Every Hebrew scholar says this. They have no business. Saul is totally out of line. Saul should be waiting on Samuel and not seeking the wisdom of the family of Eli at all. They were not priests and had no business acting like priests. That's one. This could all be This It could be that there is no God in any of this part of the Ephah, that this is just them pulling out the stones that they think is politically most advantageous for them. There are several Hebrew scholars who thought that. That's one. But I like this better. And that is, this is God's working. He's now finally speaking through the stones, which he has not been doing all day for Saul. And now he's going to, and it's this. What is the role of the firstborn son? What is one of the important roles of the firstborn son in the Hebrew Scriptures? It is a sacrifice. It is punishment for the sins of their father. Think about Pharaoh. Why were the firstborn sons of Egypt killed? It was the sin of Pharaoh that caused that. Why was David's son killed? It was David's sin that called that. Why did Elimelech's boys die in the beginning of Ruth? Presumably because of his sin. Why was Abraham told to take his son and sacrifice him? I believe it was because of his sin against Hagar. Now it turns out God redeems that son. But isn't that a fascinating picture? This idea. One of the role of the firstborn son. Um, the builder of Jericho. His son. Because he rebuilds Jericho, which is a command God had said not to do, his son dies. I think very likely this is meant to be a shock that is meant to get Saul's attention. To, to, for Saul to realize, I have been wrong today. And my God is now going to, and in my own, because of my own words, My son's life is going to be demanded of me. And it should have been a moment for Saul to fall on his face in repentance. What have I done? I have sinned. There is no business for my son to die. I am the one who sinned. Maybe it's just as simple, though, as some say, that Saul said, I want to know who sinned against God, but God knows perfectly well what Saul means is, I want to know who sinned against Saul. And so God gives him that answer. It may be that simple. Saul, verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. If Saul has just a shred of justice in him, he will recognize that is no sin against me. That is no sin against God. I have been out of line. What have I been doing all day? I just cost Israel the greatest victory against their greatest enemy. I should be the one. If anyone's going to die today, it should be me, I believe that's clearly what Saul is supposed to do at this moment. Confess his sin before God. Beg for the forgiveness of God and the people. That should be what he does. And Saul says, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul is more concerned with his kingship than with his own son at this point. And the people say, we vote no. The people go, you know what? No. You're not killing Jonathan today. The people just decide, no. Saul, Saul says, I will die if I don't kill Jonathan. And the people say, deal. (laughs) Sold. You try to kill Jonathan, we'll kill you then. And here's what's funny. It turns out Saul didn't mean it. It turns out Saul chickens out of this moment. This is a standoff between Saul and the people of Israel. He has made two oaths before God now that Jonathan has to die, and the people say no. And what does Saul do? He chickens out. Now, he's wrong. What he should be doing, I believe, is falling on his face and begging for God's forgiveness and Jonathan's forgiveness and the people's forgiveness. But what he does instead is he just bails. And that's the end. Literally, this story ends. The people ransomed Jonathan, so he did not die. God is still letting the people make their own decisions. He is, they listen to Samuel only when they fear him. They listen to Saul only when they fear him. Verse 46, Then one of the most pathetic endings to a battle ever. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. In other words, the Philistines went right back to Michmash, to their fortified locations. The Philistines have been hurt, but they've not lost the war. This is the Philistines. They can handle defeat. They don't care. They went back to Michmash and continued to raid. And what could have been a devastation for the Philistines is only a small-scale defeat. Here we get a wrap-up of the account of Saul's early rule. The next chapter will be a crushing event near the end of his rule. Um, And next week's really tough. Read the first three verses of next week. That's as far as we're going to get next week. Anyway, so um, some of the biographical information so that you will see how this plays out in Saul's life. Verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against his enemies on every side, Moab, Ammonites, Edom, against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. A little hyperbolic language there. Obviously, he did not rout them every time as we're going to see. Uh, But that's common language. We'll talk about that some next week. Um, He did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Again, he's a decent war leader, terrible king. Just in case you wanted to know, here's a little bit about his family. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua. The names of his two daughters were these. Firstborn was Merab, the second Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Um, Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. So now you, you can put those, if you want to draw a little genogram, you can now make sense of all of that. Verse 52, this is just exhausting to read this. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. You think that's a commentary? Why is he going to have to fight the Philistines his entire kingship? Because he made a foolish oath on the day that God had delivered Philistia into their hands. So he's going to get to fight them for the next decades. How exhausted. You may also feel exhausted by that? The idea of being a king and having to fight nonstop for your entire kingship. And when Saul saw, this is a great one, when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is a great, uh, Paul pointed out on the podcast. We're about to meet a new king in a a few weeks. This new king, everywhere he goes, he draws mighty men. Saul has to conscript them. Saul has to conscript them into his army, not so David. Everywhere David goes, men of valor and might see him and they just follow him. They flock to him, quite literally. Literally. From last week, let's wrap up with this. Do we dictate what kind of answer God provides? No, we don't. Will He answer with what we want? Maybe. But He is our hope and our only hope. Our hope is not our own oaths. It's not our own vengeance. It's not our own might. It's not our own intelligence. It's none of that. It is our ability to submit to Him. We pray and we ask and we need a king, and we keep needing a king, but we need one who is absolute and powerful enough for us to actually hope in, not ourselves. Not one like Saul, not even one like David, one like Christ. In this messed up account and messed up accounts like these, we read them and we think, this, we have not changed much. We're reminded once again at how little hope we can place in ourselves. little hope we can place in ourselves and how much we very much so need a different kind of king. Not one we can tame. Not one we can scare into submission. Not one we can dictate terms to. There's so much that we'll see with this. God may have hard things for us. God does have hard things for us. But he also has good things for us. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes in our own immaturity or insecure spirituality We miss good things. The honey is dropping all around us. But because of something we've decided, we don't get to experience it. Even cooler maybe is to share with you this, this insight. God has promised a stone of confirmation for us. In a reference back to the Urim and the Thuman, which we don't hardly read about at all in the entire New Testament, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is wandering among the churches and this is one of the messages. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him the white stone. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a clear reference back to the Urim and the Thuman. The Urim stone glows for God's people when we face judgment. Do they go in Yes, the white stone with your name, and it glows. That is the role for us. That's, that day will come. Maybe, literally, God will use those stones in our judgment to show us. And then we get to keep the white stone for the rest of eternity. It's our little keepsake. Right? I pulled the white stone for you. Hold on to that forever. Remember that I am with you. See the stone. Taste the honey, even in the midst of the hard things. Stand if you will. I want to read another passage here to wrap up our time uh, as we sing and enter this time of invitation and then go outside and experience the, the, the testimony of baptism. But I want to encourage you, um, if you if you've didn't know about this God who calls us into this relationship with Him, who has this stone for us that He gives to all who accept His free gift in grace, it's just free, it's just put your faith in Him and he will save you and say yes to you. That is his promise forever. If you've never put your faith in him, please do so today. Let today be that day. If, if you have done that, but you're not following that, you're not living with him, you're not following that, then please come and pray. Talk to him. Confess to him. Get, get that file nice and neat with God. The confession, the file of recognition of where we're wrong. Um, keep those accounts short with him. If you've been through our welcome home process, Um, you've met with Lance and others and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family to add your dysfunction to ours, we'd love to have you. And so you can come up and do that during invitation as well. We wrap up with this. From 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to his disciple Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The very words of God.